Now, I can hear you guys, and you can hear me, right? Okay. I took my hearing aid out of this area because it's messing with this. It's giving me feedback. All right. That uh, little video that just played about hallelujah or different... uh, different way of singing it, different way of looking at it, and some of the words were different, made me think during the week about this message. And by the way, the devil doesn't want me here this morning. I want you to know that. (laughs) All week I've been sick as a dog, coughing, sneezing, just crazy. And then this morning I get up to come here, and I got a dead battery. (laughs) I go, okay, that's good. But I remember something from years ago and read it again. Be the kind of Christian that when your feet hit the floor in the morning, the devil says, oh, crap, he's up. (laughs) That's the kind of Christian you got to be. We don't care what he thinks. We only care what the Lord thinks. Hallelujah is a funny word. It's probably not a single person alive who isn't familiar with the word hallelujah, believer or non-believer. We've all heard the word repeated time and again, especially during this Christmas season. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It's on loan to the Gentiles. (laughs) It was incorporated into the English language from Hebrew, but it's really a compound word. It's two words. And I, I thought I'd just share that with you for a second, since you know my background is Jewish. And then I came to the Lord late in life, and he turned me around. The, the title of my message is The Turning Point. Hallelujah is two words, hallelujah and yah. Now, some of you may know what this, these two words means. The old English translation of praise ye is where hallelujah comes from. And Yah is a version of the Tetragrammaton, which is the, the holy name of God, the four letters, Y-H-V-H in English. But you, no one knows how it's pronounced, but the people call it Yahweh or Yahweh, the English transliteration. It's the covenant name of God. It means I am, basically, I am. I am that I am, the uncreated creator. Jewish belief holds that the name is too holy to be pronounced. That's why they never use it. And regardless, no one knows how to pronounce it correctly because it's all consonants and no vowels. Most translators, both Jewish and Christian, use the word Lord, spelled L, capital, O, capital, R, capital, D, all capitals, whenever that word is in the scriptures. And it's a rough translation of, of what Yahweh really is. There's another word they use too, Adonai. Adonai is a fun word because it's plural, talking about God. <laughs> the great uh, Shema is the prayer. Shema Yisrael, Elohim, Adonai, Elohim, Achad. Well, Elohim or Adonai can be used in both places, and that's the Hebrew, and it means here, O Israel, the Lord's. Put an S on that. Our gods are one. Why don't they understand the Trinity? <laughs> it's my question. It's really simple. It's right there in their own prayer book. Um, in Jewish tradition, 
For many centuries, uh, people referred to this most holy name, though, of God as the name, because they wouldn't say the name. In Hebrew, they say Hashem. The word for bless is Baruch. So they go, Baruch Hashem, and they shake your hand, bless the Lord, which is a really great greeting, I think. It's kind of kind of neat. And uh, then there's the really holy one, uh, the word holy one, blessed be he, and that in the in the Hebrew is Hakadosh Baruch Ha, kind of sounds weird language. You got to spit a lot, but today many Christ followers are divided on how to how to pronounce uh, or, or the appropriateness of the translation Lord. Some preferring to pronounce the actual name, which is forbidden in Judaism when they say Yahweh. Uh, believing that this makes the faith more authentic and original, while others stick with the Jewish Christian tradition ways of expressing their devotion. But, no matter on what side of the debate we find ourselves, we must both affirm the much-needed authenticity and Israelite character of our modern prayers without losing sight of the graciousness of Israel's God, who is far more concerned about our hearts than about our grammar. <laughs> Believe me. <coughs> Excuse me. So that brings me to a, a little story that I just got a while ago. A Jewish businessman in Chicago sent his son to Israel for a year to absorb the culture. When the son returned, he said, Papa, I had a great time in Israel. And by the way, I converted to Christianity. Oy vey, the father says. <laughs> what have I done? He took his problem to his best friend, Ike. And he said, I sent my son to Israel and he came home a Christian. What can I do? Funny you should ask, said Ike. I too sent my son to Israel. And he also came home a Christian. Perhaps we should go see the rabbi. So they did. And they explained their problem to the rabbi. Funny you should ask, said the rabbi. I too sent my son to Israel, and he also came home a Christian. What's happening to our young people? And so they all prayed, telling the Lord about their sons as they finished their prayer. A voice came from the heavens. Funny you should ask, said the voice. I too sent my son to Israel. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. Just as an aside, when I was in Israel and I was talking to a more Orthodox Jew that my guide knew, and my guide's a good friend of mine, and he said to me, he said, Michael, Jesus is your Messiah, but not for the Jews, only for the Christians. We Ours is still coming. I said, well... I told my wife this one story once. Five minutes after the rapture, they're all going to be believers. <laughs> so we're going to get into faith. Faith, I think, is a good subject for the end of the year. Dr. Gerald Mann once said, I believe the essence of faith is planting trees we will never be able to sit under. Think about that. That's faith. I call this the turning point. And believe it or not, faith is a very popular subject today. There's even a TV commercial that says you got to have faith. you got to believe. Self-improvement, motivational courses are everywhere stressing the importance of faith. 
the self-made man of the world today proclaims confidently that he has faith in himself and in his society. By the way, I'm sitting down because my, my hip is killing me right now. <laughs> i got to have a new hip, okay? Politicians speak to us about having confidence in the ideals of our constitutional republic, a revitalization of faith in our form of government. We hear it every day on the news. People talk about having faith all the time. But have you ever wondered what faith is in the biblical sense? What does it look like? How does faith operate in the life of a Christian? What does it look like? C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Bible fame, the great theologian, said, Every great truth of the Gospels has some special passage of Scripture devoted to its definition and elucidation. The 13th of 1 Corinthians is the resurrection chapter. The 4th of 1 Thessalonians is the hope chapter. The 15th of 1st is the resurrection chapter. The 13th of 1 Corinthians is the love chapter. Excuse me. And the 1st the fourth of First Thessalonians is the hope chapter. But the eleventh chapter of the book of Hebrews is the faith chapter. The eleventh chapters of Hebrew has often, often been called the hall of fame of the, the Bible because in the Holy Spirit, in that chapter, crowns all the men of faith, the royalty of faith, men and women. This chapter is not so much an education on faith as it is a series of pictures showing what faith has done and how it becomes the dominant principle in the life of a believer. If you haven't read it, please do. What I hope to accomplish in our time together this morning is to discuss what authentic faith is, genuine faith that pleases God. And then we'll look at some of the Old Testament characters mentioned in Hebrews 11 who demonstrated faith and received God's approval and then proclaimed him before men and thus became part of that cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 talks about. They gave testimony to the power of faith in every circumstance, under every human trial, and we have the promise, the assurance, that this same overcoming strength can be ours right now in our day in our world, and in my humble estimation, we really need it. The author of Hebrews begins the faith chapter by saying, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Note one word here, and I'll tell you why I note this word. This great faith chapter begins with the little word now. The Greek term can also be translated and or but, indicating that the content of this chapter is connected with the preceding chapter. Always remember when you read scripture, context is everything. When the word of God was written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there were no paragraphs, there was no punctuation, it just ran. Don't worry about chapter and verse. Worry about what it says. 
Consequently, verse 38 then of chapter 10 says, the righteous one will live by faith. This is a direct quotation from the Old Testament book of the prophet Habakkuk. That's a mouthful. Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk had been complaining to God. He'd been bitching and moaning to God, saying, hey, what is going on? And he had let him see only the bad stuff and the sin of Israel and not the good. He said, come on, God, there's a lot of good here. Well, God then revealed to the prophet that he would soon allow the enemies of Judah, which is Israel in that day, to be conquered, to conquer them in punishment for their crimes and their sins. This raised some question in Habakkuk's mind. And those same questions are still around today. Think carefully. Isn't it a fact that we often see the wicked and the evil prosper and the good suffer, the godly suffer? And we ask, why? Why? We're looking for justice sometimes. God answered Habakkuk's question by saying, Behold the proud. His desires are not upright. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is God's answer to every problem of your soul and mine. The key phrase is quoted three, tri- three times in the New Testament. First in Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. Paul quotes it here to show that man is justified by faith. Through the death of his son, God eliminates the guilt and the penalty of sin and places us before him as righteous. Do you know what that's called in theological terms? It's called positional truth. Our position is in Christ when we come to him. When we accept him in our life, our position is in Christ. We are no longer in the world. And Paul said it in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's positional truth. We have two natures, though. We have our old sin nature and we have our elevated nature as Christians in Christ. That's called position and condition. (laughs) Our condition sometimes is much less than what our position is in God's eyes. Our position is that we are righteous as Christ is because of what he did on the cross, not because of anything we did. We grab onto this truth by faith in the same way that Cain's brother Abel did in Genesis. Second, in Galatians chapter 3.11, Paul repeats, the righteous will live by faith. The Galatian believers had begun by faith. Paul planted that church. They had begun by faith. They had been growing. And then some came from the outside and came into their midst. And these we called the Judaizers because they were trying to make these people go back to the Jewish way of law in order to be accepted by, by God. That's called legalism. 
They wanted to be under the law. There is none righteous under the law. The word of God says there's none righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the, the test then? What, how, how well do I have to do? Well, you've got to be perfect. I mean, the Greek term for, for, it, for sin is hamartia. And it's an archery term where you're shooting at a target. Anything less than the bullseye is not good. And that's where we are. We're less than that bullseye. we got to be perfect all the time, every day, every moment of every day of our lives. Is there anybody in here that can attest to that and say, I'm perfect? No, I didn't think so. Uh, Paul reminded them that they were not only justified by faith, but that they were to continue daily to walk in that faith. The inspired writer to the letter of Hebrews now restates this preeminent biblical principle. The righteous will live by faith. So what is faith? It's a good question. (laughs) It's a really good question. The opening verse of Hebrews 11 is not so much a definition of faith as it is a declaration of the significance and the power of faith. The importance of faith is emphasized by the use of the word in both the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament word for faith is trust. Trust. They used a lot of times, but it's the same word that they translate trust, or translate faith. In the Hebrew, it's the word batah. Sounds like Klingon, doesn't it? <laughs> batah. <laughs> it's a Star Trek thing. Okay, <laughs> maybe. It could be better translated to lean on or to have confidence in. That's a better translation. Um, in the New Testament, all the words translated believe, faith, faithful, and believing come from the same Greek root word, pisteo or pistis. A careful study, though, of all of its uses in the New Testament indicates that the, the Holy Spirit stresses this as an element of an active and personal trust. Maybe the best New Testament definition of faith can be found in the Bible. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whenever we ask, and whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You're going, okay, Mike, wait a minute. (laughs) I didn't see it. Well, remember, faith is described in Hebrews 11.1 as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. W.H. Griffith Thomas, another theologian that I like to quote from, in his commentary on the letter to the Hebrews says, Faith is described in a twofold way. It is the foundation of things hoped for and the conviction or evidence for proof of things not seen. The word substance or foundation indicates that faith must have a basis, which is the word of God. And so the vital question is not, do we believe, or what do we believe, 
whom do we believe? For me, in my simple mind, faith is simply confidence in God and his word. I've seen it in action. I've screamed to him, complained to him, hated him, and loved him all in the same time. So let's look at faith as it relates to our relationships. Did you know that faith enters into every human relationship? It does. Whether it's social, business, educational, or governmental. In fact, faith is one of the fundamental principles in the highest of all human relationships. What's that? Marriage. Marriage. Mutual faith causes a young man and young woman to break the ties of home and family and pledge their love and devotion until death do us part. At least they used to. Okay. This is modern day. I'm not so sure anymore. Without the exercise of faith, the business world would collapse. In fact, recent history in our, our economy, and we've all seen it, reveals that banks have been forced to close their doors in certain instances because their solvency came into question. And as an outcome of this, many states now have laws prohibiting the starting or spreading of false rumors about the financial condition of banking institutions. In education, an astronomer may look into outer space with a telescope and find a new star no one's ever seen before. No one's got a name for it. It's out there. And that discovery is then verified by another scientist. And it becomes part of the standard textbooks on astronomy. Teachers and students alike accept it as fact although not one of them has ever seen that star. Political parties adopt certain platforms and nominate candidates who promise to carry out those respective platforms. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about what's going on today in Washington. Because people have faith in the promises of political candidates, or at least they used to, they elect them to positions of power and prestige. And privilege. So how does this all fit into the spiritual side of life, you might ask? Just as faith enters into all human relationships, it's also the foundation of all spiritual relationships. I find that one of the strange things in life is that men will exercise faith in everyday life, but refuse to exert any faith in spiritual matters. I mean, perfect example. You're driving down Winchester. At 70 miles an hour. There's people coming the other way at 70 miles an hour. And there's a white line that is the only thing that keeps you from crashing into each other. That's faith. <laughs> you have faith in that guy and that or woman in that car. They're not going to cross the line and you're not going to cross the line. That's faith. There's nothing keeping you from going across that line or them. You never thought about it that way, did you? Now you're going to be really careful. <laughs> On the human and natural level, man can often succeed in deceiving his fellow men. But this is impossible with faith that's directed toward the Lord. God, who cannot lie, according to Hebrews 6.18, has given men certain promises to accept by faith. If you ever have a chance to get a book on the promises of God, get it. Any book on the promises of God. They're wonderful. Because God says it's true. 
Paul said of Abraham in Romans 4, 20 and 21, that he was strong in faith. What was that strength? Well, Paul says it in Hebrews. I think it's Paul that says it. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. After all, he's only God, the creator of the entire universe, of every molecule in your body. He's only God. So how does one acquire this kind of faith? Well, in certain sense, God is the author of that faith in both the human and spiritual worlds. He created man with the capacity for faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That is a verse that a lot of people just glide right over. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith. He gave it to us so that we could come to him. If we show even an inkling of wanting to know, he gives us this gift so that no one can boast. There's nothing you can do to earn it other than want to know him. When evidence is placed before him, although he may not have seen it himself, man can accept as true and act accordingly. I remember once seeing a painting of a young child that I think was called my first lesson in faith. And it really made an impression on me. It depicted a small boy standing on a a diving board about to jump into a swimming pool for the very first time. Although he was very afraid, he jumped anyway. Why? Because his father was in the pool with his arms outstretched, not only to reassure him, but also to catch him if he had a problem. The three elements of faith were there, and they are. The dangerous position of the child, the strong arms of the father outstretched, his promise, jump and I will protect you, I will not let you sink. God says the same things to us. Go forward. Go forth. Preach the word. Tell people about me. Tell them about my son. I won't let you fail. It's up to me, he says, not you. Just go. Open your mouth. Child has to know something about his father's love and strength. In other words, to act in faith, he must have confidence in him and his word, not to mention his strength. After all, he's only God. (laughs) The Bible says faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So in the most basic sense, faith is belief in the testimony of God's word, the Bible. There's nothing you can read that has more truth in it than this book. Included in it it is the complete account of the person and work of God and God's Son on behalf of sinners. It betrays, portrays, not betrays, portrays the glorious story of the redemption the Lord has 
provided through Christ. Last week, Terry gave a great message. And he talked about Jesus and Nazareth and all that. And if, and if you went, I wanted to make sure that you understand something. If you went to Nazareth back 2,000 years ago and you were looking for Jesus and you said, where's Jesus? They go, who? Nobody knew him by that name. His name, if you wanted to meet him there, you would have said, Epho, Yeshua, Bar Yesef. Where is Joshua, the son of Joseph? And then they would point him to, point you to him. His name, Joshua. Does anybody know what Joshua means? I know somebody does in this room. God with us, the Lord is with us, the Lord, the, the Redeemer, everything. Je- Jesus is a transliteration of Yeshua, Yeshua. And goes into Greek where it's Yesu and becomes English as Jesus. Just thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> it isn't very difficult to believe this account though, because we read the following in the first chapter of John, John chapter 5, in the first part of first, first John chapter 5. This is kind of a, this paragraph is, is more of a wake up people. Where John, the apostle says, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater. Because it is the testimony of God which he has given us about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Because God gave him the faith to believe that. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. God places his medal of honor upon the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, not for what they did, but because of what they believed about him. This is saving faith. It's a simple confidence and trust in God, and his word. But there's a lot of things that faith isn't. There are at least three false views concerning faith all around us today. First is the rationalistic view of faith. It's kind of like I call the scientific view, which defines it as the agreement of the mind to a demonstrated truth. This view is at best poor and at worst pitiful and is seldom practiced in human relationships by those who preach it. Faith cannot be put into a test tube. It has to do with unseen things. The second false view we will call for one of a better name, the legalistic view. This speaks of a system of good works which force God to supply faith that is lacking in our lives. kind of goes like this, and you'll all recognize this when you were kids. If I just do my best, he will certainly make up the difference. I suppose this is where we get the saying that God helps those who help themselves. 
This, of course, couldn't be further from the truth because God helps those who have found that in themselves they can't do anything, really, that, and anything of really importance, that they need to fully rely on God and trust Him to perform His will in their life. In fact, it's this type of faith that a dear brother once taught me what he prays when he gets to the end of his rope in any situation. Dear God, I can't. You can. Please help. (laughs) The third view is the fatalistic view of faith, which regards it as grace imparted by God. In this view, if faith is withheld, it's not the fault of the sinner who refuses to believe whether a person has faith or not is entirely up to the Lord who either bestows or denies it. Kind of capricious. Can you see it? In this view, there is no individual responsibility or any accountability involved. Blame God, not me. He didn't give me faith. Blame him. Folks, we've grown a whole generation of individuals that won't take responsibility for their actions. Or in some cases, their inactions. The fact that scripture states that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God makes these views ridiculous and unscriptural. God has presented in his word the truth concerning his son. And men must believe that recorded truth or deal with the consequences. It's as simple as that. God's word says it better than me. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So let's sum it up. Distrust and belief. Distrust of the word of God was the starting point in man's sin. Started way back in the garden. Surely you will not die if you eat from the tree. (laughs) Distrust. Belief in the word of God is the turning point in man's redemption from the penalty of that sin. The Lord Jesus said, speaking to his disciples and some of the religious leaders of the day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He goes on in the next chapter of John, chapter 6. And he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe? To the panicked jailer who cried out to Paul and Silas, while he was in this Roman, they were in this Roman jail and this earthquake came and they all, all the doors swung open and all the prisoners were freed and the jailer was panicked because he knows if he lets these guys go that the penalty is death. He goes, well, let me read it to you. <laughs> no, I won't. He says, sirs, talking to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? He was about to take his own life. And they simply answered him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 16. If any of you aren't familiar with it, read it. Verses 30 and 31. And verse 2 of Hebrews 
11, it says of faith, this is what the ancients were commended for, that kind of faith. When someone asks the question, how may I receive God's testimony? Or like the jailer in the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? Just look at these men of old. Read Hebrews 11. Read it over and over and over and over and over. It'll blow your mind. Then read 2 Samuel 23 too when you get a chance. And you'll read about the, the Old Testament way of faith. These are the patriarchs of the Old Testament, many of whom are named in this 11th chapter of Hebrews. They believed God, and they demonstrated their faith by their actions. They weren't perfect in many ways, just as we aren't. The Lord had spoken to these men in a variety of ways by the prophets, but he speaks to you and me today by and through his Son, Jesus. He says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, and folks, we are in the last days. How long they're going to be, we don't know. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. You and I are living in the light of the full revelation of God's word. There ain't no more. This is it. This is all you need. Our response to that revelation of his son in the Bible is what determines whether or not we are accepted or rejected by him. That's the reason that the writer of this letter said what he said in chapter 10, verse 29. How much more severely... Do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Furthermore, that's why verse 39 of that same chapter is of such comfort to me and should be to you as well. But we, we, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe or have faith and are saved. And if you're here today and don't know whether or not you are among those who believe and are saved, I'd like to invite you to make that step of faith today. What better day, what better day could there be than the last day of the year and approaching a new year and a new you. I'd like to invite you into the forever family of believers. You can do that right now. All you have to do. In fact, why doesn't everybody just bow their heads right now and close your eyes. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that you came to save me. And I want to take that gift, that pardon. I want that pardon. I accept that pardon, that gift that you give. Make my life what you want it to be.